0: good to be able to sing out and declare what we believe to be true. Not only that that we've believed in our heads, but that that we believe too in our hearts. We believe, we believe in you, Jesus, and we worship you in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Please do be seated. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It is grace that brought me safe thus far, and it's grace that will lead me home." Well, if I didn't already know that it was 250 years ago, almost exactly to the week, it was last weekend, in fact, that John Newton penned those words, I might well have thought that it was the Apostle Paul who had written them, if I didn't already know. Because in a sense, those words are the perfect summary of the Apostle Paul's life. But too, it's a wonderful summary of all that we're going to discover in this letter to the Galatians as we open it up in the weeks that are ahead of us. It's all about grace. It's all about what grace can achieve in the life of a follower of Jesus. You know, grace is not just some fluffy church word without substance. It's a powerful word. It's a life-changing concept, and it's all about what Jesus has done. For followers of Jesus, there's nothing but God's grace. We walk upon it, we breathe it, we live by it, and we definitely die by it, for it's been grace, for it's by grace, as we heard earlier, that we have been saved. And in a sense, that's what I hope we're going to discover in the course of the next seven weeks as we kick off this new teaching series, Grace, the Essential Gift for Imperfect Disciples. It's a teaching series that's going to take us on a journey through chapters 5 and chapter 6 of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and I pray it's going to be a series that takes us deeper into our experience of God's goodness. Now today we're going to kick off things looking at the opening words of chapter 1, which is the context for all that we're going to discover when we get to chapters 5 and 6. Well, the big message of Galatians is this, because God makes us right with him by grace, through faith in Jesus, we have freedom. That's the big message. God has done something in Jesus that gives us a spiritual freedom. My chains are gone, my heart is free. Well, Paul wrote Galatians because the church in Galatia were having something of a a theological crisis. Why? Because a whole bunch of leaders were teaching exactly the opposite of what I've just said. Described. A group of legalistic Jews were insisting that Christians must keep the law of Moses, and because of this teaching, they were getting all sorts of uh, wrapped up in all sorts of chains that they had previously escaped from. Now, one aspect of their teaching was particularly around the theme of circumcision, and they were saying, Look, circumcision is a requirement for those who wish to be saved. In other words, circumcision is essential if you want to become a Christian. First, you must convert to Judaistic ways of being, and then you will become eligible to live the Christian life. Now, this teaching was ungrace, and it was quietly polluting the church in Galatia. And when Paul heard about all this, and we need to remind ourselves, Paul himself was a Jewish convert, and he he makes that point repeatedly throughout the letter, Paul very emphatically, in his opening words, says to the church in Galatia, no way, Jose." That's the Spanish translation of Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Now, one of the key verses in Galatians, of which there are many, is Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And it says this. It says, We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Well, roughly translated, what Paul is saying there is, we know very well that we're not going to be in good relationship with God by rule keeping only, but only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How did Paul know that? Because Paul is able to say, we've been there, we've done that, we've tried it. We Jews had the best system ever of rules in the world, and what we discovered is this, is a rule-based system for pleasing God is fundamentally broken. There's no rule that you can keep, there's no amount of self-improvement, no amount of trying to be good, and certainly no circumcision that you can have that will ever put you right with God you do not need to be circumcised to be in a right relationship with God. Do I get an audible sigh from any of the men in the congregation? Was well, an opportunity for a joke. What do you call a cheap circumcision? A rip-off. Anyway, I didn't do that one in the first service. I thought it was too edgy, and I'm actually regretting it right now. If you're not sure what circumcision is, then Google it, um, if you're really brave. But Circumcision matters because actually it's a big theme for Paul. He mentions the word circumcision 15 times in six chapters of Galatians. Now, by the end of Galatians, as we're going to discover in the weeks ahead, Paul is very clearly making the point that this whole thing is not an issue of whether a person is circumcised or even if a person is good based on how well they've kept the law, But the big question for every human being is whether or not they are a new creation or whether they have been born again. The question that Paul is asking the church in Galatia to wrestle with is, what have you done with Jesus in your life? And I think that's a great question for us to wrestle with. What have we done with Jesus? And what we're going to discover is that God's grace is the gift that just keeps on giving. It's never wanting. His grace is never ending. God's grace never discriminates. It never abandons. God's grace is always enough. It's abundant. It's lavish. God's grace is made perfect in your weakness and in my weakness. God's grace is never, ever late. It's incredibly costly, and yet it's given to you and given to me free of charge. Now, if you're perfect here this morning, I know we've got some amongst us, you, you don't need God's grace, okay? You can tune out for the next seven weeks But if, like me, you're an imperfect disciple who follows Jesus in wobbly lines, then you cannot live without the grace of God in your life. Philip Yancey, in his book, which is a kind of seminal book, really, on the theme of grace, what's so amazing about grace, and if you haven't read it, I encourage you to, says this. Grace means there is nothing we can do that can make God love us more. Nothing you can do that can make God love you more. And grace means there is nothing we can do that will make God love us less. And grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Let's just dwell on that last sentence for a mini moment. Grace means God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. That's how much God loves you today. It's a lot. Now, I want to suggest to us this morning that that's perfectly good news for imperfect people. So what is grace? Well, as we tried to demonstrate earlier, but they tried to sabotage my talk. Grace is what God does because God is gracious. That's why we experience grace is because it's in the DNA of God to be gracious. Grace is God choosing to bless us rather than to curse us, which is what our sin really deserves, Grace is a gift from God, not because we deserve it, but because God is good. Grace is a result of the love of God. It's the unmerited favor of God. So that's where we're going to be going over the next few weeks, discovering even more about this grace in Galatians chapter 6 and 5. So open up your Bibles with me. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 1, as I said, to try and set the context for all that's going to come in the weeks ahead. I'm going to read to you the, the opening 10 verses. And it says this, Paul, an apostle, who was sent not from from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and uh, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, I'm astonished that you so quickly desert the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and that you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say it again if anybody is teaching to you a gospel other than the one you've accepted, Let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, which I used to do, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, there's no doubt, is there, that we are living through very difficult times economically as a country, as a nation, maybe even as a world. Now, since we chatted about politics earlier, why don't I make this comment? Maybe after you saw the Prime Minister's uh, New Year speech followed by the opposition speech on, on Thursday, maybe your mind's been put at rest and you're thinking everything's going to be fine and the world's going to become a better place. You see, tragically, the financial squeeze that we're currently in, it's pre- because of that, it's predicted that the number of people filing for bankruptcy in the year ahead will be unprecedented. Now, that's absolutely devastating, isn't it? Now, bankruptcy is the last resort way for people to deal with debts that they cannot pay. Now, I'm not a financial advisor, as you're about to discover, but in very simplistic terms, individuals who are declared bankrupt are essentially passing their unpayable debt to another person or to another entity so that their debt can be eliminated. That will then give them financial freedom from their creditors. But there's another kind of bankruptcy, which is even more serious, that's even more devastating. Why? Because it has eternal consequences, and it's spiritual bankruptcy. Now, the problem is exactly the same. There's an utter inability to pay a debt which I owe. The debt that I have is too big, and therefore there's no way in my own strength I can reorganize life on my own to make that debt manageable. And then there's the solution, which actually is exactly the same as well, but it's different. I need the help of someone else to deal with my debt so that I can know freedom. And it's this kind of bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy, that Paul is speaking about in Galatians chapter 1. And he says, but there is one way to deal with this problem. There is one way. God's. God, I declare myself completely bankrupt before you. God, I need you to come in and pay a debt for me that I can't pay. God, I need you to organize my life so that I can know freedom. Now, if you've ever struggled with financial debt or you're currently struggling with that, you'll know that there's a terrible temptation to just bury your head in the sand and hope that your financial struggles and worries go away. Oftentimes, we can find ourselves looking for a quick fix to the problem or to find a shortcut or to go to a loan shark. I mean, aren't they just the most predatory creatures on the planet? But of course, our debts don't just go away. And if anything, such an approach to our finances often means our finances get dramatically worse. And as if our financial burden weren't enough, then we end up with all sorts of emotional burdens, of guilt and of shame and of disappointment, and we can very quickly end up in this ever-downward-going, burdening spiral. Now, what's true financially, I want to suggest, is also true spiritually. I wonder if you've ever been there. I know I have. Very aware that I've got a problem in my life which is spiritual in nature, it's way too big for me to handle on my own. So what do I do? I try and make it in my own strength. It's always my default start point to make it in my own strength. And the end point is always the same, fail. And then I start looking for an alternative fix. I'll go to one of those online gurus who will say, well, if you do step one, two, and three, the result will be four. It never works. They promise the earth, but they deliver um, nothing. And then I find myself wrestling with shame, I wrestle with guilt, I seek solutions in all the wrong places, and life gets ever more challenging and the burden of the chains around me get ever heavier. And I just wonder this morning whether you can identify with me in that. You know, I spent way too long in my pre-Christian days um, being trapped in a prison, And on occasion, I've gone back to that prison, even in the days when I've been following Jesus. But every time, I've concluded exactly what the Apostle Paul concludes in our Scripture reading this morning. And it's the same challenge, in a sense, that he's giving to the Galatians. He's saying, look, the gospel is the only answer to spiritual problems. There is no solution apart from Jesus, so stop looking elsewhere for solutions. Only Jesus can deal with my unmanageable debt and with yours. Now, if you are with us uh, last weekend, or you've listened back, if you weren't able to be here, you know I made something of a throwaway reference to something that we feel really provoked and challenged by as a, as a leadership team in the life of the church. And I want to, in a sense, hang our message this morning on exactly what I shared last weekend. And the first point I made last weekend is about keeping the message the same. Do you know the gospel does not need an upgrade for the 21st century? It's still a good gospel, and it's still good news. It doesn't need an upgrade. Tim Keller explains the gospel like this, and I think this is brilliant. He says, the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. One, two, three, ABC. But it's the A to Z. It's the beginning, the end of the Christian life. It's the way to go into the Christian life, and it's the way that you live out the Christian life. A little over 500 years ago, Martin Luther of Reformation fame declared that Galatians was the most important book in the Bible. Well, that ought to excite us about this series. We're going to look at the most important book in the Bible, in his opinion. Why did he say that? Well, he said it because Galatians explains what the gospel is not, and he found that really helpful. Galatians explains how to do the Christian life really badly, and it's a way of learning, isn't it? If we want to understand what the gospel is not, um, then it's a way of helping us understand what the gospel is more clearly. In our text this morning, immediately after Paul has shared his credentials, where he says, do you know what? I'm somebody sent with the authority of God, so you really ought to listen to me in verses one and two. And then he does what every good Baptist does at the beginning of a meeting. He offers up a short prayer of thankfulness for Jesus in verses three to five. He immediately launches into this stinging rebuke of the church in Galatia in verses six to eight. He's pretty ticked off, isn't he? And he gets straight to the point without any of his usual pleasantries. He says, I cannot believe how fickle you all are. I can't believe that you have brought into this lie about God. You absolute plonkers. Now, Paul isn't going to win any popularity contest, is he, in saying what he's saying? And he, he recognizes that in our text. But somehow the bluntness of his message makes the point all the more seriously. A false gospel is being preached, and essentially it's being argued that in addition to Christ, there were certain laws that you needed to observe in order to be accepted by God. And these teachers were saying, look, if you don't do that, if you don't obey these laws, then you're not going to be the person that God wants you to be, and you won't be in right standing before him. Paul says that is theological claptrap. Basically, the idea is this, is Jesus plus works of the law equals salvation. Jesus plus works of the law equals salvation. And Paul challenges the church and says, look, that is not the message you originally subscribed to, and it's not the message upon which the church was founded. You were founded on a message of grace alone by faith in Jesus Christ. But these other teachers were saying, Jesus plus works of the law without grace is what you need, but Paul is saying that can only lead to one place, and that is captivity. So Paul confronts them, he says, I'm shocked at how fast you've turned away from this good news. And he makes this hard contrast, stating that they're doing the very opposite of living in the grace of Christ, they're actually living in the ungrace of the law. They're embracing a false gospel. Now, gospel literally means good news, but they were um, embracing, in the words of Donald Trump, fake news. And fake news goes against the good news of Jesus. And so Paul is like, in verse 8, look, why are you listening to this rubbish? Why are you embracing it? You're a people who know the truth. Why are you turning away from it? Do you know, it doesn't matter who's teaching this ungrace, even if it's an angel that comes down from heaven, you do not need to listen to or embrace this rubbish that they're teaching. that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? I encourage you to just file that away for the week ahead, just in case you have any angel sightings. An angel will never teach you ungrace they will only ever teach you grace so paul is if you like putting a stake in the ground right at the beginning of his letter preparing the galatians for all that they're about to hear towards the end of the letter and everything in between and i think paul's message causes us to wrestle with at least one really big question and it's this is it possible i am believing or i have believed in a false gospel Is it possible I've believed in a false gospel? Now, last weekend, we shared the challenge to constantly think about what we uh, believe and to try and ensure that what we believe is fully in alignment with the Word of God. And I spoke about fine tuning our connection. Now, for most of us, as we think about that question, is it possible I've believed in a false gospel? Your reaction is probably going to be exactly the same as mine. Me? Why would I do that? No, never. I know the truth and nothing but the truth. Why would I ever live in a compromised or a watered-down gospel? But here's the problem. It's so easy to become blinded to our belief structure to to the point we don't even realize what we're actually believing. We may say one thing based on what we think, but functionally our actions might demonstrate something else. There's a misalignment between our theology and our actions, now, let me show you just one way that that can play itself out. And this is what Paul is challenging the church within Galatia. And it can play its way out through legalism. This idea that your relationship with God rests on your ability to follow the rules. This is where you feel like God views you based on what you do. So imagine for a moment, you've had a really good week, okay? It's been the best week ever. You've read your Bible every single day, morning and evening. You didn't get into any arguments with your wife or with your husband or anybody else. You didn't lose your temper. You didn't kick the dog. It's fine if you kick the cat, but the dog's something else. It's been a pretty good week. And therefore, what you conclude is God, therefore, must love me. God, you love me because I've had a good week. So you feel like, Monday from Saturday through to Saturday has been really good. So when I come to church on Sunday, I therefore can hold my hands up really high in worship because it's been such a good week. But then there's the week that wasn't quite so good. You didn't read your Bible, not even once. In fact, the only thing it was used for was to wedge the door open. You got into all sorts of arguments with people. I don't know about you, but if I have one argument, I have a whole series of arguments during the week you've lost your temper. Maybe like I shared last weekend, you've engaged in unhinged anger towards other people. You've been bitter. You've been in a bad mood mood all week. Stop nudging the person next to you. It's not about them at this point in time. Maybe you were short-tempered. Maybe you gambled. Maybe you drank too much. Maybe you fall into the trap, which is often mine, of eating too much of the wrong things. You, you dabbled this week in pornography your thoughts were far from pure it's a bad week and so on those weeks you think to yourself well i can't even go to church i can't worship because i've screwed up so much i don't feel worthy to raise my hands in worship because i've failed you god in fact i have no right to worship you god is what we can conclude Now, I don't know about you, but the fight against legalism actually is a a daily grind for me. It's so easy to fall into the lie of believing that God somehow is up in heaven and he's keeping a score sheet on me. He's checking off to try and decide whether he should be mad or bad towards me. God is not Santa. He's not making a list. He's not checking it twice. He's not trying to work out who's been naughty or nice. That's legalism. It's legalism because God's ability to bless me is tied to my behavior. Do you know that God's hands are not tied up based on how well or how badly you have lived your life this week? And that's good news. God is not Santa, God is a loving father who has done something about our sin problem. That's called, the, called grace, that's called the gospel, it's called good news. And that's how false gospels work. In a sense, they're a slippery slope. And when we function under legalism, this idea of following the rules to please God and doing the right thing to please God, then we end up wrapped up in guilt and in shame and in disappointment. Because oftentimes when we think that we have to please God with the way that we're living, and if we haven't, then we disappoint Him, we end up becoming distant from God. And our relationship somehow becomes very cold. Why? Because we think the rules matter more than the relationship. Jesus would say to you today, my relationship matters more, than, matters more to you, with you, than the rules do. We can feel guilt. Guilt leaves us to feel disqualified. It might leave us feeling that God's grace isn't enough or even sufficient for us. God's grace is sufficient for you today. Conviction is something different to guilt, isn't it? Conviction is designed to bring us back to the gospel, but guilt will push us away from the gospel because we feel so unworthy. You believe in a false gospel every single time you view your standing before God based on anything other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Every time. Now, let me be very clear on this because I can already sense some of you are reaching into your bags to get the stones and the tomatoes to, to throw at me. Paul is not against the law. That's very clear in Galatians. He's not against the law. In fact, he's saying that the law and the rules and disciplines, if you like, have their place. We'll discover that in the weeks ahead of us. But what Paul is arguing against in Galatians is elevating the law to a place where you assume it makes you more right with God than your relationship with God does. The gospel isn't freedom to sin either. It's an empowerment to run from sin. So Paul is not saying in our letter, look, you can sin as much as you like because God is so graceful. He's going to forgive you. In fact, in Romans he says, shall we sin in order that God's grace may abound all the more... In other words, sin loads so that God looks even better. Paul says to that, by no means. He couldn't say it more clearly. So, Paul is not against the law. Let me underline that. Paul is also not saying that God's grace and the gospel is an excuse to sin. A false gospel says, do. The true gospel says, it's done, it's finished. You know, I have a sense that God is challenging us this year to find gospel confidence. And last weekend, I referred to this as turning up the volume. I think what happens is once we grasp that the gospel is still good news and it doesn't need an upgrade, that it still works today, our confidence in that gospel begins to increase. And therefore, it's good to think about the gospel. It's good to remember that it's still at work and people's lives are still being changed because of the grace of God. But also I have this sense, and Paul is challenging the church in Galatia with this, sort your theology out. Come back to God and check whether the things you believe really are the things of God. Because the more we tune into the things of God and the more connected we are to Jesus, the more tuned in we are, the more gospel confidence we have to live out this faith that we're called to. The more confidence we have, the more loudly we'll proclaim the gospel in our lives and with our words. Out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. What God has done in my heart will flow out of my mouth. Wouldn't it be great if we were a church that were known for our confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which still changes lives today? Wouldn't it be great if we were a church who so understood the grace of God? That we lived out of that grace, and as we live out of that grace, others say, I need that relationship to deal with my spiritual bankruptcy, too. We are a people who have been declared free because of the gospel and because of the grace of God. What do you look at most in life? I want to encourage you to stick a verse of scripture on whatever it is you look at. For some of us, it's the mirror. Stick this scripture verse on your mirror. For others, it's our partner's eyes as we stare lovingly into them. Stamp this scripture verse on their forehead. For most of us, it's our phones. Make this the screensaver on your phone. The first thing That you look at. You see, in Galatians chapter two, verse twenty, there's a declaration of gospel confidence. And I've never seen this until preparation for this teaching series. I'd love for us as a church to learn this, but not just learn it in our heads, but allow this to be the message that penetrates our hearts. Look at what it says. It says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. That's gospel truth. That your old life, your pre-Jesus life, is dead and it's buried and it's forgiven and it's forgotten. We don't need to go back and fish out all those old sins that we did in our pre-Christian life and beat ourselves up with it. It's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. Get your head around that mind-blowing thought that the God of the universe, who was involved in creation, who came as a baby, who died on the cross, who conquered over death, And has therefore dealt with my sin, is the God who's living in my heart. Wow. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God. And this last line is for some of us today. I feel quite sure of it. I'm trusting in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Some of us are really going to struggle to grasp that today. I'm not worthy. God, you don't love me. Jesus didn't really die for me. He died for everybody else, but not for me. This scripture challenges that. It says the Son of God loves you, and he gave himself for you, for your forgiveness. That's grace. That's the gospel. That's good news. Can we stick this scripture somewhere where it's going to change our lives? Where it's going to enable us to live out of the grace of God that He's lavished upon us. I'm going to declare this verse over my life for the rest of this year. and encourage you to do the same. So I wonder, can we stand together? Let's stand. I'd really love for us this morning as individuals, but too as a church community, to make this our declaration as we head into 2023. And if you believe this this morning, I want to encourage you to say it with boldness and to say it with confidence this morning, believing it to be your truth. Not just in your head, but in your heart. Shall we say together? My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you this morning that that scripture is absolutely true, that our old self has died with Christ. It's dead and it's buried. Thank you, Lord, for that truth that if we know you, that if we love you, the very son of God, the saviour of the universe is alive in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you. And Lord, thank you for that truth too, that you loved us and that you gave yourself for us. All is a great work of your grace. We worship you. We worship you this morning. I just want to encourage us just just to be still, just for a moment. I wonder if this morning there's there's something that God wants to just underline from all that's been said this morning. I really hope it's not my circumcision joke. Forget that one. (laughs) But maybe there was something else that was actually worth hearing about who you are and how loved you are, about how much God delights in you today. That you can tread off the, get off the treadmill this morning of living a life based on rules and the law to try and please God. Your relationship is enough. Maybe there's something this morning about a false gospel that you've somehow adopted into your life which Is poisoning your walk with Jesus. Lord, we invite you to come this morning. Speak to us, challenge us, not with feelings of guilt, but maybe with feelings of conviction. (laughs) Certainly not feelings of condemnation. Lord, speak to us. Stormy weather just reminds us this morning that even in the storms, you are still God. A God of grace. A God who's declared a great gospel. A God who loves us. And a God who saves us. Amazing grace. We worship you in Jesus' name.